Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be in Exodus 14 through 17. And the children of Israel have left Egypt, but they have not yet crossed the Red Sea. And so in the 14th chapter, they're crossing the Red Sea. And then chapter 15, they sing the song of Moses, or we sometimes call it the song of the sea because it's the rejoicing that happens after the parting of the Red Sea. And then Israel murmurs. They complain over the bitterness of the only water that they have to drink, and the Lord quickly shows them a solution, and they solve the problem. And then in chapter 16, they're crying because they don't have bread, but they're also crying because in Egypt they had better food, and so the Lord's going to give them this stuff called manna, he's going to send some quail, and there's some rules given. Hey, this is when you gather it, this is when you don't, and there's some modern application there. Then in 17, they murmur again because they lack water. So as soon as the Lord feeds them with bread, they complain because they have no water. So the Lord shows Moses what to do. He strikes a rock, and that's a really cool story that we're going to get into. And then at the very end, they face their first enemy, a battle. Amalek shows up to contend with them, and Moses sends Joshua out with a force, and then he stands up on the hill, and he holds his hands up. And as long as Moses is holding his hands up, they prevail. And when he drops his hands, they start to lose the battle. And so Aaron and Hur kind of hold up the prophet's hands. And there's some beautiful symbolism there, which the Lord then points out and says, boy, you got to remember that one. So that's kind of our summary of the chapters we're going to cover. So before we jump into the individual chapters, let's kind of look at this as what do I take out of this week's study? What could I talk to my family? What could I share with my seminary class or my gospel doctrine class? What are some of the great lessons here? And I'm going to say this a thousand times. The greatest commentary on the Old Testament is the Book of Mormon. We know from the Book of Mormon that the Bible, and specifically the Old Testament, went through hands that were not faithful to it and stripped plain and precious things out of the Scriptures. And the Lord's plan was to restore those plain and precious truths. Therefore, what we should do every time we get to a story in the Old Testament, we should ask ourselves, where does the Book of Mormon teach this story? And does that story in the Book of Mormon restore greater truths or give added insight or show me something that this Old Testament story isn't telling me? And today is one of those classics. You'll see Israel murmur, and they do that over and over and over again. In fact, when we get to Numbers chapter 14, where they go into the promised land and survey what's going on. Can we live here? Can we take this land back? This is our land. Can we have it? And Moses sends in the 12 spies. And 10 of them come back saying, there's no way. We can't do it. We're not strong enough. Even though the Lord parted the Red Sea and fed them in the wilderness and has done all these mighty miracles, their conclusion is, we can't do it. We can't conquer. We're not strong enough. And Joshua and Caleb are the ones that come back and say, yeah, they're a mighty people, but with God's help, we can do this. Look at what the Lord's already been able to do. And the Lord says, that's it. That's it. 
You've hit the limit. This is what he says. I'm reading from Numbers chapter 14. The Lord says in verse 20, I have pardoned according to thy word, meaning Moses has pled for God to forgive their murmuring. And the Lord says, I have pardoned according to thy word, but as truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Because all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, have tempted me now these ten times, and have not hearkened unto my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swear unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it, except for Caleb and Joshua." They were the only two spies that came back with a positive report. So the Lord basically says, you've crossed the line. One too many times you have done this to me. I don't know where he gets the now these 10 times. I don't know how he's counting, but today we're at least going to see four of them. We're going to see four moments where Israel, after all that the Lord has done, murmurs, And I think the Lord basically says, you've done it too many times, so now you're going to wander in the wilderness. He says, I'm still reading in Numbers 14, as truly as I live, saith the Lord, as ye have spoken in mine ears, so will I do to you. Your carcasses shall fall in this wilderness. Because they're always complaining, we're going to die in the wilderness, we're going to die in the wilderness. And the Lord says, okay, you, you will, you will die in the wilderness. And this is where he says, everyone who was 20 years old and older when they left Egypt will die in the wilderness, and he will take their children into the promised land because they crossed the line. So what is the message? Where in the Book of Mormon is this murmuring story told, and why is it so grievous to the Lord? And that's where we've got to turn to the Book of Mormon. The story that we're going to cover today in the Old Testament is basically 1 Nephi. It is the story of Laman murmuring, Laman and Lemuel constantly murmuring against the Lord. In fact, I would say Nephi does try to repackage his experience in the Exodus tradition. It's not just the murmuring, but it's the whole the story. The whole 1 Nephi. You're going to see 1 Nephi so many times in this early part of the Old Testament. But here's where the Book of Mormon's better. Here's where we need to say, okay, we've got to balance the Old Testament version with the Book of Mormon version because it does two things that you're not going to find in the Old Testament. So make sure in your discussions this week, you pull in those additional truths as you study the Old Testament. Number one, the Book of Mormon is better because it counters and foils Laman and Lemuel with Nephi. Instead of just seeing murmuring, You have to contrast the murmuring with the faithfulness of Nephi. You have to see a good example contrasting the bad example that you're going to get. And that's missing in the Old Testament. I'm sure there were some. I don't believe all of Israel were the murmurers. There has to have been a group of people who were faithful to the Lord. There had to have been a Nephi. But somehow that narrative is lost in the Old Testament. All we have left are the Laman and the Lemuels. And you have to bring in Nephi's faithfulness. For example, go read 1 Nephi chapter 17 and look for how Laman summarizes their journey up to that point. 
and how Nephi summarizes their journey up to that point. How could two people who went through the exact same experience see it so differently when they looked back? But that's what you're going to see in 1 Nephi 17. One person, Nephi, is going to look back and say, look how great the Lord was. Look how much he blessed us. And Laman's going to look back and say, look how bad it was. Look how much we suffered. Is it any wonder that Nephi becomes what he becomes and Laman becomes what he becomes? And so I think you've got to see the contrast in a Nephi as well as a complaining and murmuring Israel and Laman and Lemuel. So there's one thing we've got to add to this week's Come Follow Me, is the faithfulness of how Nephi saw those challenges. Secondly, why is Israel's murmuring such a problem? Why is Laman and Lemuel's murmuring such a problem? And we're going to turn to King Benjamin's address, because I think this is a pivotal message of the Book of Mormon. You're going to find this theme and this motif repeated so frequently. When you get to Helaman, you're going to hear them say these very things as if they're pointing back to King Benjamin. So turn with me to Mosiah chapter 4. Now, Mike and I have done this many times. I know we did a Book of Mormon podcast, and this same theme comes up numerous times. But bear with a brief summary of it. In chapter 4, verse 11, King Benjamin tells them to do something. Now, I'm going to pause on that something in just a minute. But notice the next five or six verses. In verse 12, he says, If you do this... And then he lays out everything that would happen if you do what he told them to do in verse 11. So let me just point out the consequences of doing it. He says, if you do this, you'll always rejoice. You'll be filled with the love of God. You'll always retain a remission of your sins. You'll grow in the knowledge and the glory of him that created you or in the knowledge of him that is just and true. In other words, if you do this, your relationship with God will be good you will obey the first great commandment to love God with all your heart. Doing this will help you keep the first great commandment. But then he continues, starting in verse 13, if you do this, you will not have a mind to injure one another. You will live peaceably and render to every man according to that which is due. Verse 14, within the circles of your own home, You will not suffer your children that they go hungry or naked, nor will you suffer that they transgress the laws of God and fight and quarrel one with another. See, that's not a commandment. That's a consequence of doing this. And then he goes on, verse 15, you'll teach them to walk in the ways of truth and soberness. You'll teach them to love one another and to serve one another. Doing this will help you in your home. You'll be a better parent. And then he goes on in verse 16, you'll also succor those that stand in need of your succor. In other words, you'll take care of people. So do you see what King Benjamin's trying to say? You will obey both of the great commandments to love God and to love your neighbor if you do this. So what is the this? Back in verse 11 of Mosiah 4, the this King Benjamin says is, I would that you should remember and always retain in remembrance the greatness of God and your own nothingness. In other words, the key to living the gospel is to remember that God is great, 
and that we are not. We get into problems where we think we're great and God is not. And the shortcuts through the pride cycle are to remember both in prosperity and in pain that God is great. The solution to pride is to remember that when I prosper, when I have abundance, it's because God is great and I am not. If instead I am great and God is not, then everything I did was my own doing, and I don't need God, and that leads right into pride. And the same thing is true in pain. If in pain we remember that God is great and that we are not, it leads to humility and strength and the Lord's help. If instead, in pain, we think we are great, how dare God treat me this way and let me suffer? I am more important than you're treating me. I am great, and God, you're not because you're not respecting how great I am. That's when we turn against God. And that is the problem in this week's Come Follow Me chapters. Bryce, I just want to interject here. I have relatives that have been through AA, um, Alcoholics Anonymous or Addiction Anonymous. And in AA, they say one of the fundamental truths that you have to own, you have to know this in your bones, is that there's a higher power. And I have relatives who are teetering on agnosticism or atheism. And I come to them and I say, what do you do with that? Like, you don't believe in God or you don't know if there's a God. What do you do with that idea that there's a higher power? And one of my relatives told me, well, you know what, Mike? I do acknowledge a higher power. I am powerless at the face of my addiction. There are powers above me that I don't understand. And if I acknowledge my own nothingness, and acknowledge that I'm powerless to this addiction and that I have one, that I have an addiction, that is the step to healing. And so if you're listening to this podcast right now and you're maybe not in the state that Bryce is talking about, maybe you're, you're wondering if there is a God, I think that principle still holds true, that if we acknowledge our own nothingness, that kind of humility is a great step. And I think however you view this principle, I think it holds true either way. Yeah, that's what I think King Benjamin is trying to say. So what is it that the Israelites got wrong in their murmuring? Let me see if I can, again, use the Book of Mormon to illustrate what was wrong with Laman's approach. Turn with me to Mosiah chapter 10, where they summarize Laman's response to all of these challenges. Mosiah chapter 10, starting in verse 12 They, meaning the Lamanites, were a wild and ferocious and a bloodthirsty people, believing in the tradition of their fathers, which is this. So this is the tradition of Laman and Lemuel, but it is also the tradition of the Israelites in the desert. Here is why their response was offensive to God. Notice in verse 12 and 13 some repeated words believing that they were driven out of the land of Jerusalem because of the iniquity of their fathers, and that they were wronged in the wilderness by their brethren. And they were wronged while crossing the sea. And again, that they were wronged while in the land of their first inheritance. Do you see? That's an assumption that man is great and that God isn't recognizing my greatness. 
I'm being wronged. This isn't right what you're doing to me because I'm greater than this. I'm more important than this. And that's the problem. In that moment, especially after they had seen all that God had done, the right response is to not think man is great and how dare God let them go without water for a few days. It's to remember that God is great and that maybe he's teaching me a lesson about my need for water and my need for him in my life. And then he's going to provide water in a miraculous way. So every single time they murmur, it's because they overinflate their value and undervalue what God's value is. Hence, the Book of Mormon says that Laman and Lemuel murmured because they knew not the dealings of that God who had created them. Now, notice back in Mosiah 10, in verses 14 through 16, as soon as you feel wronged, notice the next repeated word. They were also wroth with him upon the waters. And again, they were wroth with him when they arrived in the promised land. Verse 16, they were wroth with him because he departed. And when you're angry, look at verse 17. They have taught their children to hate and that they should murder and rob and plunder and do all that they could to destroy. And so there's the pattern. When you are under the assumption that man is great and you do not see the greatness of God, you often feel wronged. And then you get wroth, you're angry at God, and then you find yourself pushing against him and trying to hurt him. Now, we see this all the time in the church. Someone will feel wronged. Some church leader does something or something happens. Now they're angry at the church. And then they want to fight against the church because they feel wronged. Now, that is exactly what the Israelites are going to do. In spite of all the miracles he has performed, every time they suffer, they're going to feel wronged. Rather than remembering the greatness of God and calling upon that higher power and trusting that the same power that got us out of Egypt is somehow going to provide food and water in the desert. It's holding on to the greatness of God in the desert that is this week's message. We trust him. He's going to take care of us. He's shown us that a thousand times, but maybe there's lessons I need to learn today about his greatness and about my nothingness. It was interesting when you said that the 17th chapter of 1 Nephi kind of uses some of this language. Look at verse 20 of 1 Nephi 17. It says, we suffered all these things, save it were death, and it would have been better that we had died. And so the Israelites who just got free, they just finally became free. In the 12th verse, the Israelites say it would have been better that we would have served the Egyptians than we should be out here and die in the wilderness. And they say it again in the middle of verse 11, that he, they essentially say to Moses, you know, you took us here and we're just going to die. Yeah. As soon as they think they're trapped against the Red Sea, we might as well have stayed in Egypt and died. It's that same attitude. Same, same argument. There's the message. So with that overview, let's now go back through all of these chapters. So let's go back to chapter 14. Okay, so I'm going to geek out briefly, but if you go to the second verse, 
They go to this place called Pi-Hahiroth. That may be a Hebrew version of the place called the house of the god Hathor, and that is a possible location for Sinai. There actually was a mountain there, and there's a lot of scholars that have identified this as a temple sanctuary for Hathor. This was the feminine goddess of Egypt. She was a god of motherly love. And so we put some stuff in the show notes, if you want to pull on that thread, that that is a possible location for Sinai. I think there's a lot of different locations, but this is on a path. Like this isn't just a wild wilderness where nothing exists. There was a road that individuals would take to go from Egypt to Israel. And in this narrative, the Lord has and pushes the Israelites off that main road. You can pinpoint that location. Now, does that matter? Not necessarily, but it kind of helps you realize that there are some things in the Exodus narrative that are rooted in history. There's a lot of arguments today that people say everything in here is just made up stuff. And then there's other scholars that say, no, there's actually things that indicate some historicity. For example, many of the Egyptian names that are happening in the text and so forth. There's a lot of these things. Probably one of my favorite scholars that has talked about this, his name is Richard Friedman, and he wrote a book on the Exodus. But back to our story, they do, they argue that they're going to die. Now, my take on this is they're pushed up against a body of water, and Yamsof could be Red Sea, Sea of Reeds. Most scholars are going to say Sea of Reeds. I really don't care, potato, potato. They're at a body of water, and they're trapped. They're between a rock and a hard place, so to speak, between the Egyptian army and a body of water. And they see no out. Yeah, So Bryce, why don't you read that verse in the Doctrine and Covenants that talks about the situation and how Moses could be receiving revelation on the go as he's moving. So in Doctrine and Covenants section 8, where the Lord is telling them, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you. So he's teaching the Latter-day Saints who are coming out of the apostasy how to receive revelation. He says, I'll tell you in your mind and in your heart. And then he says in verse 3, this is the spirit of revelation. Behold, this is the spirit by which Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. Therefore, this is thy gift, apply unto it, and blessed art thou. In other words, maybe the Lord wasn't so definitive and thundering voice from Sinai as much as Moses had a still small voice inside him. I will tell you in your mind and in your heart, and that's how Moses led them over the Red Sea. Impressions into his mind, impressions into his heart, and Moses follows them like you and I are trying to do today. Maybe Revelation didn't come to Moses any differently than it comes to you and I on a daily basis. I love what the Lord says to Moses in verse 15. Back in Exodus chapter 14, the Lord says, look, I'm going to help you, Moses. I promise I will help you. Verse 13, fear ye not, stand still, see the salvation. Verse 14, the Lord shall fight for you. And then he says, why are you crying unto me? Move forward. In other words, it's not all God. In our challenges, when you have a challenge that you're facing and you don't see a way out, do your best to move forward. I think there's this lesson about the balance between what we need to do for ourselves and what the Lord will do for us. And I I think that little moment there in verse 15 is, hey, move forward, get going, trust that I'll be with you, 
do what you can, step forward, and you'll find that the Lord helps you in the process of moving forward. Yeah. I think that's so important. And if we put ourselves in this story, the sea could be the personification of the chaos dragon. The word for sea, yom, is the ancient Near Eastern name of the chaos dragon. These symbols have all kinds of meaning, and a lot of times positive and negative. You see, the sea can represent chaos, the waters can represent chaos, but they can also represent life. They're kind of both, and they're opposites a lot of times. And so in verse 21, it says, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord caused the sea to go back by a strong east wind all that night, and made the sea dry land, and the waters were divided, and the children of Israel went into the midst of the sea upon dry ground. Now, in the text of chapter 14, it seems to indicate that this is a night crossing. If you look at verse 24 and if you look at verse 27, this is a night crossing where they're crossing the water at night. And there's a lot of scholarship that this is kind of what's going on in John 6. The context of John 6 is the bread of life sermon, but in the middle of John chapter 6, verses 15 through 21, Jesus crosses the sea at night to reclaim his apostles. And Jesus is the embodiment of this God that is splitting the sea. And so in the Gospels, when Jesus is walking on water, it's kind of this message that he stands over the chaos. And yet here in this night crossing, it's Moses as God's representative. So go to the 74th Psalm and look at what it says here. In Psalm chapter 74, we read in verse 12 that God is my king of old working salvation in the midst of the earth. Verse 13, thou didst divide the sea by strength. Thou breakest the head of the dragons in the waters. Remember, the sea dragon is the water, Yom. Thou breakest the head of Leviathan in pieces and gavest him to be meat, meaning the dragon, to the people inhabiting the wilderness. Thou didst cleave the fountain and the flood. Thou dried up the mighty rivers. And then it goes on, but it's this idea that the battle with the dragon and the sea is a motif in the temple drama. The temple drama anciently was in the fall, and the first three days, it was kind of a seven or an eight-day celebration, the first three days were devoted to the beginning acts of the drama, the pre-earth life, the mission and the covenants that the king and the prophets were given, the creation, there were songs of creation, and the king did combat with chaos and death. And then on the fourth, fifth, and sixth day, symbolically, the king would die, go to the underworld. And this is where I believe that they would talk about the atonement of the Savior, that for three days he would be in the underworld. Now we know that he's going to be resurrected. And so on the seventh day, Jehovah, represented by the Ark of the Covenant, and the rescued king, who's now come out of the underworld, were joined by the people in a grand procession. They would go around the city, and there would be singing, there would be dancing to celebrate the victory over the chaos. That's going to be 15. That's going to be the Song of the Sea, where they've split the sea, the children of Israel are now born, and they come out the other side. And then the final day of the drama was the feast. That feast, we're not going to cover in this podcast because that's going to be in Exodus 24, when on the top of the mountain, individuals from Israel meet God and have a feast. That feast, symbolically for us, 
will be the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's discussed in uh, Doctrine and Covenants 27. So with that in mind, this night crossing, it's kind of cool stuff that Moses is taking them across, and they make it out on the other side, and Pharaoh chases them. I mean, we've all seen, uh, what's that one with Charles? Ten Commandments. We've all seen it where they like get taken down, and they get drowned in the depths of the sea. Um, That's in verse 23. The Egyptians pursued and went in after them, even all of Pharaoh's horses and his chariots and his horsemen. And then verse 25 says that it took off their chariot wheels and drave them heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us flee from the face of Israel, for the Lord fighteth for them against the Egyptians." And then when the morning appeared, the Egyptians are in the midst of the sea. And then verse 28 talks about how they're taken out by the sea. And it says at the end, there remained not so much as one of them. And then I love verse 30, the Lord saved Israel. And then the people believed. That's verse 31. So they make it through. It's a night crossing, which I think is interesting. And when the morning breaks, they're on the other side. And here we go again, right? As soon as they see the miraculous hand of the Lord, they believe, right? Look at verse 31. Israel saw the great work which the Lord did upon the Egyptians, and the people feared the Lord and believed the Lord and his servant Moses. So in the moment of the rescue, they believe God. But then moments later, they don't remember that. They don't remember the great things that God did. So we're going to find them in the very next chapter murmuring against Moses. So they just don't remember the great things that God has done unto them. Okay, let's talk about the Song of the Sea. So now let's move into chapter 15, and this is a major theme throughout the Scriptures. You're going to find this throughout the book of Revelation, that in the end of the world, when God is victorious over evil, that we will sing a new song. You're going to find the words to that new song in Doctrine and Covenants section 84, starting in about 99. The Lord talks a great deal about this new song, singing the song of redeeming love, as it's called in the Book of Mormon. It is so typical for the Lord's people when they see his greatness, they sing songs. Do you remember when Alma was converted, where he cries out and says, O Jesus, thou Son of God, have mercy upon me? And then he sees the Father sitting on his throne, and then there's this beautiful line, that the angels were singing praises to the Father, and Alma says that his soul did long to be there. One of the great indications that we do love what God has done for us is we sing praises to him. And so here in chapter 15, after they have been freed from the Egyptians, and there's no more threat of the Egyptians ever coming back, God has conquered the Egyptians. They sing They sing praises and they dance. And then we turn to a very wonderful character, Miriam the prophetess. I wonder if Miriam started the song. She becomes a major character here, and she doesn't get a lot of real estate in the Scripture, so we really need to talk a little bit about Miriam the prophetess as well as the song that they all sing. I really do think a lot of you may be interested in getting into the weeds on Miriam. So what we did was we did a little write-up just on Miriam based on a lot of the things that are happening in the Hebrew Bible and in recent scholarship, kind of looking at 
the different angles because she is, Bryce, she's called a Navia in verse 20. And Navi is that word that's used for prophet. It's like a spring that's bubbling up. And that hay at the end makes it feminine. So she is a Navia. She's a prophetess. And there's an interesting passage in these narratives where Moses says, would to God that all would be prophets. And then we have Joseph Smith saying things like, well, a testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And sometimes we think prophet means we're foretelling future events, but a lot of times it just means a spokesman, one to encourage you to get on and stay on the path to follow Jesus or to follow God. And so she's a prophetess in this text. She's got this hand drum, this what the King James translators are calling a timbrel, and she's leading the women with dances. And then we get this second person masculine plural imperative where she says in verse 21, sing ye to the Lord. And so in scholarship, there's a lot of debate. Is the song called the Song of Moses in verses 1 through 18, and then Miriam adds a little bit in verse 21, or is... Are verses 1 through 18 the response to Miriam's imperative? Now, I put a lot of the arguments in the show notes on this, but just know there's more arguments than we could put in the show notes. I mean, there's dissertations on this. If you want to read some of those, they're out there. And so I'm not going to settle it in this podcast, but I am going to take a position. And my position is, I believe that verse 21, that imperative is the beginning of the song, and that Moses is part of the song, but that Miriam's leading it, and they're going back and forth. They call this antiphonal arrangements. In antiquity, the dance and the song were the same, and we don't really think of it this way, but in early Christianity, they talked about like the prayer dance or the prayer circle, and there's a lot of ink spilled on this in early Christianity, how the Christians would get in a circle, and they would do a dance, and there would be a song, and the way it would work is that one person would give the line, and then there would be a repeat back and forth, and it was this idea that in this circle and hearing the line and then repeating the line, it would open the windows of heaven. And so I'm just going to read it that way. I know that there's lots of ways to read it, but in this section, she, I believe, is kind of leading the song, singing to the Lord, and then we have this beautiful song about the Lord is my strength and I will exalt him. That's verse two. He's a man of war. The Lord is his name. And we need to just know this, that in the ancient world, they did view God as a man of war. There was no police force. And so if you were wronged, it was God that would vindicate you. In fact, he's called a goel in a lot of these texts. It's translated as redeemer, but probably a better translation is a fixer. He would fix things, and sometimes that did involve violence. I mean, sometimes. And so what happened in verse 4? He cast Pharaoh's chariots into the sea and drowned them and covered them and sank them as a stone. And Frank Moorcross and others have said things like that this could perhaps be the oldest song, the oldest text in the entire Hebrew Bible. There's a possibility there. Now, not everybody agrees, but... It's a beautiful poem talking about God's power and how he split the sea. Verse 8, with the blast of his nostrils, the waters were gathered together and the flood stood upright as a heap. And how he divided the spoil and drew out his sword and blew with the wind. And then verse 11, which is really interesting, which a lot of scholars look at this and say, this is a big hint that this is early literature because by the time we get to Josiah in his reforms in 640 to 609 BC, the Israelite religion is really going hard monotheism. 
pushing monotheism and there's only one God. And we have some stuff in Isaiah that Isaiah says in this time period or thereabouts that there's only one God. But in verse 11, we have this classic example of monolatry. We have, who is like thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And so there's this acknowledgement of other gods, but Yahweh is the preeminent God. The gods of the Egyptians are nothing. Now later, that will be reformed. You know, That will be reformed to teach that there's just one God, and those other ones are not gods. Now, after you read that song and the triumph of God in Egypt and getting them out of bondage, you may want to go read the new song in section 84, which will be sung at the end of the world when Jesus has conquered Satan and Satan is bound. It's kind of that same theme that you're going to find in section 84, where he says, the Lord hath brought again Zion, brought again Zion. The Lord hath redeemed his people Israel. He talks about in verse 100, the Lord hath redeemed his people and Satan is bound and time is no longer. The Lord hath gathered all things in one. The Lord hath brought down Zion from above and the Lord hath brought up Zion from beneath. It's that victory over sin, victory over Satan, victory over the telestial world and that righteousness has conquered. I think you'll find it very interesting to compare the song of the sea in Exodus 15 with Doctrine and Covenants 84. Yeah. And the song of the sea to me is the bookend, the end of the slavery story, and the beginning of the slavery story is Exodus 1. I look at the story of the redemption of Israel from Egypt as ending here in the 15th chapter. After we get out and we cross the sea, now it's Israel tackling with their own issues. We're away from Egypt. And so what's interesting is this is the birthing of Israel, and it's told in the voices of women at the beginning and the end. One scholar referred to this as the beginning and the ending of the Exodus story belongs to women. They're the Alpha and Omega, the Aleph and the Tav of deliverance. And I think that's beautiful. I think that this idea of Israel being born, coming through the water, begins and ends with the voices of these women, specifically Miriam. I think she's a really big deal. So in Exodus 2, we have Miriam there witnessing the salvation of Moses, who, Moses, is going to save Israel. But it starts with a woman, and then it bookends at the end with the Song of the Sea. And there's a beautiful image here that Israel was in labor and then was born again by coming through a body of water. It's a beautiful image of womanhood and motherhood and giving birth to a new life. So Egypt was the labor period, and then they came through that body of water and are born again, and the Lord's going to be with them. Yeah, I mean, it's so beautiful. So we have in the 15th verse of chapter 1, the names of a couple of the midwives, Shipra and Pua, and they're saving the Israelites. The Pharaoh comes to the midwives and says, I want you to kill the males. And they agree. They say, you betcha, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do what you say. And then they don't. They save them. Can you imagine if the midwives would have said, well, we're not going to do that? Well, then the Pharaoh would have killed them and we wouldn't have saved the children. So what the women do is they tell Pharaoh what he needs to hear, and then they do the right thing. That's takia or ketman. It's this idea of dissimulation where they don't give the whole truth to Pharaoh, and they save the male Hebrews. 
And so then in the second chapter, we read about this man of the house of Levi, Amram, and we read about his wife. Now, her name isn't mentioned in Exodus chapter 2, but Jochebed is his wife, and she conceives, and then she gives birth to Moses. And then it's in this chapter in verse 4 that we read that his sister stood afar off. She went with this ark, this teba, this woven basket that the mother wove with the child in it, and she made sure that it got to the Pharaoh's daughter. And so the image I want to portray is Miriam standing there amongst the reeds in this water in the Nile, and she's next to the water. The baby is being reborn, meaning he's being saved. He's being brought out of the water again, and he's being given into the daughter of Pharaoh. And then she suggests, hey, I know somebody who could be a wet nurse for this child. And she restores Moses to his mother to be nursed. And so it's a beautiful image of multiple women at the water, at this birthing experience. I was at my nephew's baptism the other day, and his dad was baptizing him, and standing by the water were his two sisters. And they're both high school age uh, young women witnessing his rebirth. I tip my hat to those that made the decision that women can be witnesses at baptism. I think that's a beautiful decision. I think it's a beautiful image. And I think Miriam represents the equal status of women in sacred places. Yeah. I love this verse in Micah chapter 6, verse 4. Micah says, For I brought thee up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed thee out of the house of the servants and sent before thee Moses Aaron and Miriam. God is saying, I'm the one that brought you out of Egypt. I sent you helpers. I sent before thee Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. She had been intended by the Lord to be one of those that led Israel out of Egypt. And so Micah places Miriam alongside Moses and Aaron in this whole journey. And so I think we need to put her back there. Yeah, I think it's really important. I think that seeing her in this position as an equal with Moses. Now, I'm not saying she is the leader of the Israelites, because clearly in the text in Numbers where she gets into it with Moses, the Lord clearly says, no, Moses is my guy. But Miriam is a special individual, a witness of the salvation of Israel. The Lord has more than one witness of truth, more than one way to lead people. Now, I know there's priesthood keys involved and there's offices involved, and I'm not necessarily saying that. But when you think about the home, when you think about influences of your life, there's much more than a key holder that influences me towards salvation. And the Lord has many witnesses of truth along the way. And I think what we're trying to do here is to recognize that there is a great deal of females in our life that get us out of Egypt, that help us overcome the burdens that we face in life. We're grateful for Moses. We're grateful for Aaron. But I think we need to pause and acknowledge the Miriams of our life that led us along the way as well. Yeah, I think that's good to acknowledge that. Now, Sometimes Miriam gets a bad rap. In Numbers chapter 12, there are these tensions between her and Moses, 
and she speaks out against Moses because of his wife. And there's this challenge that Miriam gives to Moses's authority. And there's a lot of scholarship out there where some people say, you know, why is this in here? And they're kind of frustrated. And I'm just going to offer one view. And just because I'm offering this one view, it doesn't mean I'm right. I'm just offering a way to look at the text, to think about it. And so what I want to introduce is this idea that there were tensions during the monarchy about who should be the authorized representatives of God. You see, these stories have been edited and textualized, and there are pieces of the scriptures where each individual is actually denigrated. And so Miriam gets hers. And remember that in 921 BC, when Israel splits north and south, Judah's in the south, Israel's in the north. In the north, they still build temples. And they have what I'm going to call a rival priesthood, and there's tension between different groups over who the priests are. And it gets a lot more detailed, and so I'm just going to say I wrote a paper on it. We're going to link it in the show notes. The paper's called Whose Staff Is It Anyway? And so to be brief in speaking, because this could be its own podcast, the story of Moses' staff is not as clear-cut as it seems at first glance. You see, there are texts in the Hebrew Bible that talk about the staff that is this tool of authority, and that the staff is owned by Moses. I think most people read the text and we're like, yeah, it's Moses' staff. But there are a bunch of verses that talk about the staff being Aaron's staff. And it gets even more complicated when we get into the text where it talks about Aaron being Moses' Levite brother. If Aaron was Moses' brother, why would they have to say that he was his Levite brother. And so I address that as well. There's a lot of scholarship that seems to indicate that later people put Aaron in the superior position, meaning Moses's older brother. Why? Because the people that followed the house of Aaron were claiming the rights to authority. And so the texts that talk about the staff being Aaron's staff were edited by those people. And the texts that have Moses owning the staff were edited by those people. And so we have places like Exodus 4.2 and Exodus 7.15 that all indicate that the staff belonged to Moses. But it's not so clear cut because we have places like Exodus 7.10, 7.12, and 7.19 that refer to the same staff as, you guessed it, Aaron's staff. And so there's a lot of people asking lots of questions. Were there two staffs? Was it Moses's and Aaron got to borrow it? And not to be complicated, but then there's another verse that says that the staff is God's staff. Now, I'm not here to settle it for you. I'm not here to answer the question. What I'm acknowledging is that there are pieces of the scriptures where each individual is actually denigrated. And so Miriam gets hers. But if you remember in Exodus 32, that entire chapter denigrates Aaron. It kind of shows him as an apostate building the golden calf. But then not to be outdone, we have texts that denigrate Moses as well. Everything from bragging about striking water from the rock or not circumcising his son. And that was written by, you guessed it, those that didn't want the followers of Moses to be the authorized priesthood holders. Now, I know this may sound really messy. And so for those of you that don't want to think about this, just skip over everything I just said. Don't worry about it. But if you're someone who reads the Bible and says, I want to know why this is in here. To me, this is fascinating because I read this stuff and I go, I want to understand the complexities. And my take is that's the Miriam tradition. The texts that denigrate her are sitting in that tradition as well. So the position I'm going to take is this. 
I think Miriam represents the equal status of women in sacred places. And so then we're going to go skip over to Numbers 20. This is the death of Miriam. And in the first verse, it says, Then came the children of Israel and the whole congregation into the desert, and they abode in Kadesh. And that's where Miriam dies, and she was buried. And when she dies, it's interesting that the water dries up. Verse 2 talks about the water drying up, and that's a symbol for the loss of life. And I think it's a symbol for who she is and who she represented. And it's interesting that she is in Kadesh when she dies. Kadesh is probably related to Kodesh, which is holy. The word for holiness is Kodesh, and it's the same word as Kadesh. It's just voweled differently, but it's the same thing. And remember, there's no vowels until the 5th century AD. And so if you want to pull on that thread, we put a couple pages of some good stuff in the notes on Miriam and that the Kodeshim were both men and women. And the Kodeshim were people that acknowledged both God and the mother goddess, Kadesh or Asherah. So the connection between Miriam and Kadesh and the sacred feminine to me is very interesting. And then if you get into some of the stuff that's in Ben Sirach, uh, it's called also Ecclesiasticus. It's in the Catholic Bible, but it's not in our Bible. There's the speech that Sophia or wisdom gives. And Sophia essentially says that she is exalted and that she says that she's in the form of various trees, a cedar in Lebanon, a cypress on Mount Zion, a palm tree in Kadesh, and a rose bush in Jericho. And interestingly, she says, this is Sophia talking, the divine feminine, some of this stuff's also in Proverbs 8. She says, quote, I've extended my branches like a terebinth tree. Note that Sophia manifested as a palm tree is also a symbol for Asherah and Kadesh of all places, the very place where Miriam is buried. And so this points, at least if we read Ben Sirach, that Sophia was created before all other things, before the beginning, and she gives this speech, and she's pictured as a member of God's heavenly council. In fact, she's the most prominent, given priority among all of God's entourage. Now, in Proverbs 8, wisdom gives this speech, and the symbol for wisdom is the tree. And so all those images are kind of put together, and they're associated with water and birth and life. And then what's fascinating to me on Miriam is this idea of the Aramaic version of her name. And remember, Jesus spoke Aramaic, and the Aramaic version of her name, which is translated in the Greek New Testament, is Mary. And so what do we have in the New Testament we have this woman named Mary who's a witness of the divinity of Jesus. I mean, she knows who Jesus is. She's seen angels, and she's there at his birth. And then we have the image of Jesus at his death when he's affixed to the tree, as Paul says, and he dies. And who's right there at the foot of Jesus? Miriam. It's Mary. And then when he's anointed in the tomb, once again, Miriam is there at the tomb as a witness of his birth, his death, and then on the resurrection morning, we have a different Mary, but it's the same name. It's Miriam there witnessing the very first witness of the resurrected Lord. I think it's a beautiful thing that the witnesses of our Savior, Jesus Christ, of his birth, his death, and his resurrection 
that those things were witnessed by a woman named Miriam. It's a beautiful image. And I think that you could make that connection to this woman who's the bookends of the beginning and the end of Israel leaving Egypt and becoming free. Miriam. Now, speaking of water and trees, notice the very next story after Miriam comes in in Exodus chapter 13. Miriam sings, Miriam leads leads them in the song, and the very next story is they come to a place where there's no water. There's bitter water, and the Lord shows Moses a tree that he can add to the water that will sweeten the water. Do you see how that next story just ties a lot of those themes together? And so we sweeten the bitter water with a tree. And then the Lord says in verse 26, now again, this is, this is the message. This is what the Lord's been trying to say all along. Every time he does something good for them, every time he tries to save them, he's trying to say, verse 26 of Exodus 15, If thou wilt diligently hearken to the voice of the Lord thy God, and wilt do that which is right in his sight, and will give ear to his commandments, and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of these diseases upon thee which I brought upon the Egyptians, for I am the Lord that healeth thee. And so we need to trust that. We are all in the desert at some point in our life. All of us will go without food or water or whatever that may symbolize. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's children. Whatever we lack because we're so hungry for it and it hasn't been given to us. We need to remember that he is the Lord that healeth us and he will heal us. And faith in God is faith in his timing, but he is going to sweeten the bitter waters. We ought not to murmur and complain that they are bitter. We ought to trust that he is going to sweeten the waters and wait for his timing to do so. But this is now the second time since they left Egypt under a mighty hand that the Israelites have complained against Moses. And this is now the second time that the Lord saw fit to deliver them anyway. When they saw no solution and they murmured because they didn't see a way, the Lord opened up a way. So he parts the Red Sea and delivers them across and destroys the army of Pharaoh. And then they're dealing with bitter water and they don't see a way to drink. And so the Lord sweetens the water and they drink. Now we're going to get to story number three, the third time after they're delivered from Egypt that they again murmur. This time it's because they're hungry and there's no food in the desert, so they're going to have to rely on the Lord. But rather than holding on to the promise that he's given that he will heal them, they once again murmur. So now we turn to chapter 16. Verse 2, the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And what they say in verse 3 is very telling. Would to God we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the flesh pots and when we did eat bread to the full. For you have brought us forth into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Once again, we're back to how are we going to survive this? 
instead of just trusting that he is going to be with us, he would not have led us into the desert to let us die of starvation. He's going to help us. So the Lord provided quail, and then he's going to rain manna upon them for 40 years. couple things about the manna. If you look in verse 14, what's interesting at the end of the verse, it talks about it's as the small as the hoarfrost on the ground. The actual text talks about it. It uses the word kafar. It's as a covering upon ha'eretz. It's a kafar upon the earth, which is perfect because hoarfrost is this image. You wake up in the morning and the whole ground has this crystallized icy stuff all over the ground. And Bryce, as I was driving over here to record the podcast, I looked out in the fields and we just had a bunch of snow. It was really kind of beautiful looking out over that. And I was thinking about the manna in my mind and that word for covering this bread that came from heaven is similar to the atonement. Kafar is that word for atonement or to be covered. This bread is going to cover us. It's going to feed us. And there's a bunch of fun things you can do with this, with the word for manna. So for example, if you look in the 15th verse of chapter 16, it says, when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, it is manna, for they wist not what it was. And in the footnote 15a, it says, man who, or what is it? Now, that I mean, that's not exactly what it means. I mean, this idea of man who is probably connected to older stuff. For example, the ancient Canaanite languages use the word for what, that, that word is man, or in the Amarna letters, it's manu. And so what we think is going on is this, that the Israelites were using, according to many scholars, an ancient variant of the dialect to say, what is it? I mean, that's not exactly biblical Hebrew, but we'll just go with that. We'll say it's an ancient dialect. And in other words, it's a pun. They didn't know what it was, so they called it, what is it? It's a dad joke. I kind of think it's funny. Uh, It's really kind of cool. Now, later it's going to talk about this in other texts, how they would make it and what it tastes like. And it's called different colors. It's called white in verse 31. Later, it's called bedellum. And so we put some stuff in the show notes if you want to pull on that thread what it means. Verse 31 talks about it made with honey, or it was like wafers made with honey. That's a better way to say it. And so what's the image? Well, it tastes like honey. Verse 31, it's white, and it's kind of described as this flaky stuff. And so I'm just going to say it. This is the fruit of the tree of life. It's another way to look at it. It's sweet, it's white, and it comes from God. And I think it also is associated with milk and honey because we have white with the milk and we have honey with the description of the taste. So I think it's kind of cool. I like that. Also, there's all the rules. Like, how are you supposed to gather it? Don't gather it on the Sabbath. And so what is God trying to teach them? What is he saying about the Sabbath? I mean, clearly in verse 30, it says that they rested on the seventh day, but that they still had enough. And I think that's another modern message, Bryce, that we can apply is, okay, uh, God will provide. I'm to do my part, but sometimes what my eyes see and what heaven sees are different. And so just because I'm worried I won't have enough, God says, you know what, don't worry. It's going to be okay. He's going to be there. And I think the very end of that chapter is telling that we need to say the children of Israel did eat manna 40 years until they came to the land inhabited. He's going to take care of us in the desert. I think one of the great messages of Israel in the desert is that it's the same thing as the Jaredites 
in that portion of the wilderness where man had never been. Do you remember that description in Ether chapter 2, that where they are going and it's dangerous, he holds their hand, being continually led by the Lord. In the wildernesses of our lives, when we can't provide for ourselves, the Lord is going to help us. He is going to feed us. That doesn't make it easy. He's not. We're not after a a life free of challenges. There's going to be serpents that bite them. There's going to be all sorts of enemies that want to beat them up. But the Lord is going to be with us, and He feeds them for forty years. So let's give a couple cross references that might help you in your discussions about the manna. This is a marvelous message. Joshua five twelve. And the manna ceased on the morrow after they had eaten of the old corn of the land. Neither had the children of Israel manna any more, but they did eat of the fruit of the land of Canaan. The rule of heaven is that we are expected to do what we can to take care of ourselves. But when we can't take care of ourselves, we can trust that he will be there. He will continually hold our hand and feed us with manna until we are able to take care of ourselves. So as soon as they get to the promised land where they can now feed themselves, the Lord no longer rains manna upon them. That's good. I want to just add one, and that's going to be John 6. John 6 is the bread of life sermon, and this is where Jesus actually hearkens back to that experience. If you look in verse 49, Jesus says, Your fathers did eat man in the wilderness, and they're dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven, that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. And so, I mean, there's more, but there's so much in here. But Jesus is testifying that that story of the bread is him. And if we eat Jesus, meaning if we eat the sacrament, we eat the token of his death, his flesh and his blood, and even goes down and says that in verse 55, if we do this, we can have life as we renew those covenants. And so I think that that is a really good thing to emphasize when you teach the manna, is that the manna pointed our hearts to the Savior. So once again, look at the pattern here. They murmured when their backs were to the Red Sea, and he opened up the Red Sea. They murmured at the bitter water, and he provided a tree that sweetened it. They murmured because they didn't have anything to eat, and he provided quail, and then he's going to rain manna upon them for 40 years. And then even in the story of the manna, if they gathered more than they needed, it went bad. But when they gathered twice as much the day before the Sabbath, it didn't go bad. You would think after all of this, the Israelites would learn to trust a loving God. And I know I'm saying that to all of us. You would think after all the blessings that God has poured out in each one of our lives, that we would have a greater tendency to trust that he's going to be with us in the future. But this is where we just lack faith and we murmur. And so once again, after all of that, Chapter 17, there's no water. And so what do the people do? Verse 3, the people thirsted and the people murmured against Moses. 
and say once again, Wherefore is this that thou didst brought us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our cattle with thirst? In fact, Moses tells the Lord in verse 4 that the people be almost ready to stone me. Do you see the frustration from the perspective of the Lord every time he's been there? And yet, once again, they suffer, and it's woe is me, and they feel wronged, and they are wroth, and now they want to hurt Moses, God's representative. But once again, guess what the Lord's going to do? He loves them, and he's going to provide the water for them. And so he does. Verse 6, it says, I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb, and thou shalt smite the rock, and there shall come water out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Now, at the end of the narrative, at the end of the Exodus, go to Numbers 20 and look at this. Verse 7, the Lord spake to Moses and said, take the rock. And gather thou the assembly together, thou and Aaron thy brother, and speak to the rock before their eyes, and it shall give forth water. In verse 9, Moses took the rod from before the Lord as commanded, and what do they do? They smite the rock. Now, this is towards the end of the Exodus. And so we have this rock being smitten at the beginning, before Moses gets the Ten Commandments, and we have it being smitten at the end. And the rabbis for centuries would debate this. How did the Israelites get water? Was Moses continually smiting rocks? Was the rock in Exodus 17 the same rock as the rock in Numbers 20? And these are the discussions that they would have, because they would go round and round and talk about this. And it's really interesting, because this fact led some Jewish interpreters to conclude that the two rocks were actually the same rock. But not in the same place. (laughs) It's so weird. And so what they decided was that the rock accompanied them on their 40-year journey. And then these interpreters explain this tradition and that this tradition was discussed in the days of Jesus and the days of Paul. And Paul, remember, he's schooled in the Jewish tradition. He is a man that lived at the time when they're still talking about these things. And Paul sits in this tradition. It's so interesting because if you go to 1 Corinthians 10... And you got to read this. You're going to love it. (laughs) If you go to 1 Corinthians 10, he's talking about the rock. It's verse 1. Paul says, Brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that our fathers went under the cloud and passed through the sea, and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and did eat the same spiritual meat, and did drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. That phrase, that followed them, is fascinating. There it is. The rock that followed them. That literally is Paul taking the Jewish tradition and he's running with it. Everybody, all the Jews in his day are saying this, that the rock followed the Israelites. And Paul's like, I can go with that because guess what that is? To Paul, the rock was Jesus. Now, I think Paul would also say the manna was Jesus and the water was Jesus. And so was the cloud, the one of fire. And so was the tree that yeah. took the bitterness out of the water. Yeah. It's beautiful. So if you've ever wondered why that's in there, or if you've read it and you just skipped over it, just know that Scripture itself invites interpretation. It invites commentary. And in Judaism, they call this midrash, and there's a lot of it. And some of the Joseph Smith translation, frankly, I believe is Joseph 
teaching us how to engage with Scripture. It's what I call prophetic midrash. There's a lot of it in the Book of Mormon where Mormon will tell you the story, and then Mormon will say, thus we see. But I think that Joseph Smith gives us permission to have conversations about Scripture and to write our own midrash. Now, obviously, my midrash may not be yours. We have to follow the Spirit, and I, I'm not de- certainly not declaring doctrine. The prophets, seers, and revelators, they give midrash and say, for the church, this is how we're going to apply it. But I really think it's beautiful how Paul takes all the Jewish tradition, he takes the story, and then he adds to it. And I think that's still happening today. I think whether it's a podcast or a lesson or a journal entry in your journal, or you're talking to somebody that you love about how you interpret Scripture, I think if it leads us to goodness, it's good. And so anyway, I love it. I geek out over it. I think it's awesome. But is that the main thing? No. The main thing is they get water, and Paul would say, that water is Jesus. Which leads us to our last story of this week's Come Follow Me, Amalek, another nation, comes against them, they begin to war with neighbors. So in verse 9 of chapter 17, Moses sent Joshua and a group of people to go out and contend with Amalek. Moses is going to take Aaron and her up to the top of the mountain. Verse 11, it came to pass when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. The problem is, verse 12, Moses' hands were heavy. He can't hold them up long enough for Israel to win the battle. So this very symbolic, beautiful moment, Aaron and Hur, which represent the whole congregation, stayed up his hands, the one on the one side and the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And in that time, Joshua discomfited Amalek and his people. So this now becomes a symbolism of sustaining the prophet, holding up the prophet, holding up his hands. When the prophet is tired, when the prophet can't hold the weight, we help him hold the weight. We sustain prophets, seers, and revelators so that they can hold up their hands and receive revelations. It's a beautiful story. There's a beautiful cross-reference in section 110. After the Kirtland Temple is dedicated, section 110 is where Jesus comes, Moses, Elias, and Elijah come. They accept the house, and the Lord says something very fascinating about the prophet and revelation and we the people. Look at verse 7, I have accepted this house, and my name shall be here, and I will manifest myself to my people in mercy in this house. Now notice verse 8. I will appear unto my servants and speak unto them with mine own mouth if my people will keep my commandments and do not pollute this holy house. I will speak to my servants if my people keep the commandments. We are the ones that open the mouth of the prophet. We, the membership of the church, we, the people, control how much revelation comes through the prophet. He will speak to the prophet if we, the people, receive those words and do not pollute those words nor the temples. 
And so we find this beautiful image of Aaron and her holding up Moses's hands. And so when all of this is over, after the battle is won, we come back to this idea of you need to remember this. If you go back to chapter 16, the Lord said, gather up a pot of this manna and keep it. Now that pot of manna lasted, and that pot of manna is going to be kept in the Ark of the Covenant. It's going to be a memorial that God fed them in the wilderness. So it's that theme of you got to remember. Do you remember we saw that in the Passover? The Lord says, I want you to do this every single year so that you remember. And then after he starts pouring down manna upon them, he says, gather up a pot so that you remember. Keep this pot as a memorial throughout all your generations that you were fed in the wilderness. And so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. After Aaron and her hold up Moses' arms, we find the Lord saying the same thing. In verse 14, he says, write this for a memorial in a book and rehearse it in the ears of Joshua, for it will utterly put out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You've got to remember these things. And I don't think it's a coincidence that the very end of the Book of Mormon finds Moroni saying, I would exhort you that when you read these things, and I think that's more than just the Book of Mormon, when you read Scripture, if it be wisdom in God that you should read them, that you remember how merciful the Lord hath been unto the children of men from the creation of Adam, even down until the time that you shall receive these things, and ponder it in your heart. The Book of Mormon ends with a plea that we remember these lessons. We're less likely to murmur against the Lord when we go without if we remember what God did to other people when they went without. When their backs were against the wall and they didn't see any way to go and the Lord opened up a way to go, we need to remember that. When they had bitterness to drink. We need to remember that the Lord sweetened the bitterness. We need to remember that he fed them in the wilderness. We need to remember that if we hold up the hands of the prophet, we will prevail. We've got to teach these to our children. So may we not be the murmuring people the Israelites have become. May we not be the layman and the Lemuels today. And may we like Nephi, know that he's going to be with us. He saw the Lord's hand everywhere. May we be that kind of people. May we learn from the Israelites to not murmur because we know that he is going to bless us in the wilderness. He will rain manna as long as we need him to. It may not be the best tasting food on earth, but it it will feed us and it will satisfy the hunger within us. And with that, we'll come to a close of this podcast. Thank you for being with us. Have a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.